I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 33. Boris Godunov and the beginning of the time of troubles. Thanks for listening in. Okay, before we kick off this week, I have an explanation and an observation. So firstly, the explanation. The title of this week's episode. It's just a little bit wordy and awkward, isn't it? You see, I was hoping to do the whole of the time of troubles in the one episode, which would have simply been called Boris Godunov and the Time of Troubles, which fits the bill and rolls off the tongue nicely. However, the more I got into the subject, the more I realised that one episode was never going to be enough to cover this tumultuous, fascinating, and I have to say overlooked period of Russian history. So this week we'll be covering Boris Godunov's reign and the start of the chaos, and then next time out we'll take things to a conclusion And the only slight downside will be that both episodes will have slightly clunky-sounding titles. But, and as I often say, worse things have happened at sea. So then secondly, and probably just a little bit more importantly, and I I was wondering whether to do this at all. I mean, this is a a history podcast, not a politics podcast, but, you know, it's the elephant in the room. Just what is Vladimir Putin up to? Well, one thing I've learned is that I'm not very good at predicting the future. Uh, I much prefer to live in the past, but my view for what it's worth. And I'm typing this up in mid-February 2022, February the 12th, actually, is that Putin hasn't amassed all of those troops on the Ukrainian border for nothing. He needs to come away from this whole escapade with something tangible that plays well to the audience at home and enhances his strongman image abroad. Now, that something could be a pledge by the West that NATO will never admit Ukraine into the fold, or if that's not on the table, and I don't think it is, then Putin might just play the longer game, keep the troops in place, and wait for his destabilisation tactics to bear fruit. 
Alternatively, Russia could either launch a full-scale invasion or nibble away another chunk or two of Ukrainian territory. How prophetic of me. Let's see, but I don't reckon Putin will back off and I don't think that the West has either the appetite or manpower to stop him. Now you might be thinking that the threat of further sanctions or international condemnation might make Vladimir think twice before he crosses his Rubicon. I very much doubt it. Let's see. Okay, let's get back to the relative comfort of the late 16th century. It's 1598, Sarfeador the Bellringer has died, the Rurikid dynasty has run its course, and the new Tsar of all the Rus is Boris Godunov. But hang on a minute, why is Boris Godunov the new Tsar of Russia? Well, Feodor had died childless, and so had his elder brother, young Ivan. Going back even further, Ivan the Terrible's only sibling, his brother Yuri, had also died childless, and going even further back, Ivan the Terrible's two uncles, another Yuri and Andre, had both died in prison way back in the 1530s, and none of their heirs were ever seriously considered to have been part of the world line of succession. And so Boris Godunov, who'd been an important statesman during Ivan the Terrible's time, and the de facto Tsar during Fyodor I's reign, had no one powerful enough to stop him from easing comfortably into the big chair and slipping Monomach's cap onto his head. But you see, that hadn't always been the case. Ivan the Terrible had recognised that his middle son and successor, Feodor, hadn't quite got the necessary personality or indeed the ambition to lead Russia. And so before he died, he had made provisions for a Regency Council to be set up consisting of three key individuals. So first you had Nikita Romanov, who was Feodor's uncle and the brother of Ivan the Terrible's first wife, Anastasia. Then you had the notable boyar, Vasily Shusky. And then finally, Boris Gurunov himself. Plus, of course, when Ivan the Terrible died in 1584 and middle son Feodor took over, youngest son Dmitri was on the scene even if he was only 18 months old. So, luckily for Boris, two years after Ivan the Terrible's death, Nikita Romanov died. And Vasily Shusky, who was the junior member of the council, well, he decided to remain loyal to Boris, which allowed Gudunov to become the de facto Tsar, whilst Fyodor was off listening to the church bells. So that just left young Dmitri as a potential future claimant and someone who Boris would need to keep a close eye on. You know, just to make sure that nothing happened to the lad. And in fact, so worried was Boris about Dmitri's well-being that he had the infant Tsarevich and his immediate family move to the town of Uglich, about 150 miles north of Moscow. And there the boy remained until suddenly, and out of the blue, on the night of the 15th of May, 1591, he died under mysterious circumstances. So what happened? Well, no one knows for certain, but there are three theories as to what transpired. So theory number one, Boris Godunov sent assassins to kill Dmitri and make it look like an accident. 
because the Tsarevich perhaps stood in the way of Boris eventually becoming Tsar. Theory number two. Dmitri was playing with a knife and then during an epileptic fit stabbed himself in the neck and died. Let's just repeat that. Dmitri was playing with a knife and then during an epileptic fit stabbed himself in the neck and died. And then theory number three, Dmitri didn't die at all. Again, let's just repeat that. Dmitri didn't die at all. Boris's assassins bungled the job and killed the wrong boy, allowing Dmitri to escape and disappear. Now there was an official investigation into what happened, and it was carried out by Boris's faithful lieutenant, Vasily Shusky, and the explanation was that Dmitri had stabbed himself to death during a fit. Case closed, nothing more to see here. Now each of the aforementioned scenarios has its supporters and its detractors, but I'll stress again, no one knows the real answer. But if we apply the principle of qui bono, i.e. who stood to benefit from the act, then my money is on theory number one. Boris did it, and then he got Shusky to cover up the whole thing with the epilepsy stabbing story. And then, to add further fuel to the fire, once the official explanation was out in the open, Dmitri's mother, Maria Nagaya, who'd been one of Ivan the Terrible's later unofficial wives, was spirited away to a remote convent. Now, this isn't the last time we'll hear of Dmitri or the murder, so let's keep that particular plate slowly spinning and see what we think when we come back to it a bit later in the episode. Anyway, typically for me, I've spent far too much time looking at how and why Boris became the Tsar. The short answer is he had practically been doing the job during the previous regime and he'd made sure, as we've seen, that there was no one else in the running to become the new Tsar. But like others who had got to be king, emperor or Tsar by usurpation, sheer ambition or skullduggery, rather than just being the rightful heir, Boris's first task was to shore up and legitimise his new position, so that he was the Tsar de jure as well as being the Tsar de facto. And so he consulted with the Patriarch of Moscow, Job, who suggested that he should be elected Tsar by the Church. And just a side note here, instead of being a metropolitan archbishopric, Moscow was now a full patriarchate, something that Boris had managed to arrange during Feodor's reign and which strengthened Russia's position within the Orthodox hierarchy. But just being chosen by the Church wasn't enough for Boris. He wanted accreditation from the full National Assembly, the Zemsky Sobor, and after a period of necessary but minimal political backroom wrangling, after all it was a one-horse race, Boris was elected and then crowned a Tsar on the 1st of September 1598. Anyway, that's how Boris had climbed to the top of the greasy pole. Let's now take a look at how he wielded the power that he had so assiduously secured. Or in simpler terms, what kind of Tsar was he and what did he get up to? Well, during the initial part of his reign, between 1598 and 1600, things seemed to be going well. The Tsar recognised the need for Russia to catch up with the West, intellectually, economically and socially, and he did his best to bring about educational and societal reforms. 
He was the first Tsar to bring in foreign teachers and experts, and the first to send young Russians abroad to be educated, some of whom decided to stay on in their new countries. Like a certain Nikifor Grigoriev, who travelled to England, eventually graduated from Cambridge University, took holy orders in the Church of England, married a local woman, and went on to become the rector of a small village near Huntingdon. And with regard to foreign policy, Boris favoured the diplomatic approach rather than the use of force, and his key aims were to forge relationships with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Sweden to try and get his toe in the Baltic and win back some of the Livonian lands that had been gained and then lost in Ivan the Terrible's time. And in 1600, the new king of the Commonwealth, Sigismund III Vasa, via his Grand Chancellor, uh, a chap by the name of Lou Sapier, proposed a political personal union with Russia. However, possibly because he feared that his role, and therefore Russia's, would be that of a junior partner within an expanded Commonwealth, with Poland and Lithuania ruling the roost, Boris declined the offer. So, on the surface, it would appear that the new Tsar had made an impressive start to his reign. But unfortunately, that's not how everyone saw it. Because, and to put it bluntly, Boris wasn't liked and he wasn't trusted. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. And it seems the main reasons for this were the nobility and probably the church had collectively guessed at what had happened with young Dmitri, and whilst they had turned a blind eye to the situation, it didn't mean that they were happy with the official explanation. Then there was the whole charade around Boris's election as Tsar, and the fact that amongst the elite, Boris just wasn't considered to be the legitimate ruler. Thirdly, well, it was all about his wife. Boris was married to, and try this for size, and I'm probably going to butcher it, Maria Grigorievna Skuratova Belskaya, or simply Maria from now on, who had the misfortune of being the daughter of a certain Grigory Skuratova, who had been a member of Ivan the Terrible's Oprichniki, and who was held responsible and therefore hated for the murder of Metropolitan Philip of Novgorod just prior to the massacre of that city back in 1570. Whew. And then finally... In an attempt to placate landowners, steps were introduced that put further restriction on the movement of peasants in certain years, which moved large numbers of the population just that little bit further 
along the road towards serfdom, but yet didn't go far enough to satisfy the rich gentry. Things came to a bit of a head in 1600 when a boyar clique became noticeably restless with the new regime, and their ringleader appears to have been a certain Feodor Romanov. Now, this Feodor was the son of Nikita Romanov, who, if you remember, was Anastasia's brother and had been the top guy for a while in the regency that Ivan the Terrible had set up to keep an eye on Tsar Feodor the Bellringer. I know there's just too many Feodors here. But uh, Nikita had then died a couple of years later, smoothing the way for Boris to become the de facto ruler. Anyway, Boris decided to nip things in the bud and had Feodor Romanov arrested on charges of, bizarrely, necromancy, which I had to look up, and apparently is the mysterious art of communicating with the spirits of the dead. But there was a more serious charge, that of attempting to assassinate the Tsar. Feodor was found guilty, of course he was, and as a punishment he was forced to become a priest and enter a monastery under the new name of Philaret. Now Philaret is another name that will crop up later in the episode, so just as a reminder that's two plates we've got gently spinning in the background, Philaret and the murder or non-murder of young Dimitri. So having sidelined Feodor Romanov, a.k.a. Philaret, Boris decided to purge the rest of the boyars who he suspected were caught up in the perceived revolt, and then he set up a network of informers just to keep an eye on things, which, whilst useful, did little to improve his image. But none of these spies or informers could have seen what was about to happen, or what the impacts could have been. In 1600, a volcano erupted in Peru. Yeah, seriously, and bear with me on this. So, this volcano, called Huaya Naputina, is believed to have ejected around 25 million metric tonnes, which is a lot, of mainly sulphur dioxide particles, which went on to form massive amounts of sulphuric acid. Now this sulfuric acid was then blown around the world, obviously way up in the atmosphere, and had the effect of reducing the amount of sunlight that could reach the Earth's surface, thereby creating a kind of volcanic winter. Now climatically in 1600, large parts of the world, and in particular Europe, were also in the midst of something called the Little Ice Age, and so they were already experiencing colder than average winters. And of course, with the volcano's eruption, the winters of 1601 and 1602 were even colder, and Russia was particularly badly affected. And according to David Warren's superb book, which I've just got hold of a copy of, it's called Chronicle of the Russian Tsars. Drought and famine in 1601 were followed by further crop failures in 1602 and 1603, resulting in mass starvation epidemics and a breakdown in law and order with hungry peasants and runaway slaves in open revolt. Boris's government attempted to help the populace by temporarily removing the restrictions on movement, selling grain from the state granaries at half price and then later by giving away grain and money to the very poorest. But none of this made the overall situation any better. The treasury simply became depleted the granaries became empty, 
and it's reckoned that during this period around 130,000 bodies were buried in mass graves in Moscow alone. And then things went from bad to worse because in the summer of 1604, just when the country was slowly getting back on its feet, Russia was invaded by a large force of Poles, Cossacks and Russian dissidents under the command of a certain Prince Dmitri, who claimed to be the Dmitri that had escaped from Boris's clutches back in 1591. Now Boris must have known that this was a load of old tosh, but the Poles in particular had chosen to believe, for their own purposes, that this young man was the rightful heir to the Russian throne, even though they must have known he wasn't, and before long, disaffected elements of Russian society had also started to conclude, again for their own purposes, that the prince was actually the real Dmitri. So Boris rallied his troops and he was able to defeat the prince's army, but he failed to capture Dmitri, uh, who we'll now refer to as the first false Dmitri, or false Dmitri I, and yes, there would be others. So due to the fact that Dmitri, or false Dmitri, had escaped, his cause got a bit of a second wind and his army regrouped and a few months later, it started to march again on Moscow. And then, to top it all off, in April 1605, Boris, who had apparently been in poor health for a number of years, and who was probably wondering how on earth it had all come to this, suffered a stroke and died. The good news, though, well, the good news for the Godunov dynasty, was that Boris had a fine, healthy son, another Feodor, to step into his shoes. But the bad news for the new Tsar, Feodor II, that, well, he was only 16, and he didn't, either, he didn't have either his father's presence or his father's connections. And over the next two months, the boyars slowly at first and then in droves threw their lot in with false Dmitri I, who was getting ever closer to Moscow. And then in June 1605, with the mainly Polish army on the outskirts of the city, the boyars decided that now was the right time to act. They flung open the gates, allowing false Dmitri I and his army into the Kremlin, and at some point during the ensuing turmoil, young Feodor and his mother Maria were brutally murdered. However, Feodor's sister, Xenia, was spared, and we'll hear more about Xenia next week. So Boris, his wife, his son Feodor II, and the Gudunov dynasty are now all dead and gone. A pretender is on the throne as Tsar Dmitri, and Russia is in full-on time of troubles mode. But before we move on with all of that, I just wanted to briefly mention an aspect of Boris's legacy. Because his short tumultuous reign captured the imagination of several prominent Russian cultural icons. There was a play written in 1825 by Alexander Pushkin, with accompanying music by Sergei Prokofiev, and then there was an opera by Modest Mussorgsky. Both pieces were simply, imaginatively called Boris Gudunov. And incidentally, Mussorgsky also wrote a piece of music later adapted by Maurice Ravel called Pictures at an Exhibition, part of which I use as this podcast's intro music.
Anyway, after that all too brief cultural interlude, let's get back to the chaos in Moscow. So Force Dmitri won and his backer's first task was to show or prove that he really was Ivan the Terrible's youngest son. And he was assisted in this by Vasily Shusky, who remember Boris Gudinov had sent up to Uglitz to find out what had happened to the real Dmitri. Well now Vasily changed his story. The real Dmitri hadn't stabbed himself in the neck whilst having an epileptic fit. No, what had really happened is that he had escaped because Boris's assassins had killed another boy by mistake. Then Dmitri made two visits. First to Ivan the Terrible's tomb to pay his respects to Dad, and then next to the convent where Maria Nagaya, real Dmitri's mother, was wheeled out and swore blind that false Dmitri was her real son. And then finally, a number of boyars who'd been exiled by Boris and Nikita Romanov, a.k.a. the monk Filaret, were reinstated to positions of power and they also acknowledged that the new Tsar was the real deal. Whereas, actually, false Dmitri I was almost certainly Yuri Otrepiev, the son of a middling Lithuanian noble. Yuri had then joined a monastery where he was known as Grigori, and then he later travelled to Poland, got engaged to a woman called Marina, converted to Roman Catholicism, and somehow managed to persuade the authorities and the Polish king, Sigismund III, that he was the real heir to the throne of Russia. I mean, Sigismund, though, was no mug. He was willing to support Dmitri's claim and supplied a small number of troops, probably less than 5,000. But he wasn't going to get personally involved in any Russian shenanigans and really didn't care if Dmitri was genuine or not. The worst that could happen would be that the pretender's campaign would fail, which would be no skin off the Polish king's nose, as Russia, Russia wasn't in any position to hit back at the Commonwealth. And the best case scenario was that Dmitri would succeed and Sigismund would be in control of things via a puppet czar. And in the beginning at least, that's exactly how things were going to pan out. But to see exactly what those things were and how they would turn out is going to have to wait until the next time. So I've made a couple of mentions of spinning plates during this episode, but as with most metaphors or analogies, repeated use starts to wear a bit thin. So no more use of spinning plates, but bear in mind that we do have unfinished business, both with false Dimitri number one, even though now we can virtually be certain that he wasn't Ivan the Terrible's son, and keep an eye on this one, more importantly, Fyodor Romanov, a.k.a. Filaret. Okay, sadly time's up. I'll be back in a week's time to continue with the sheer madness of Russia's time of troubles. So until then, and as always, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 